How to Play, Episode 10, Age of Empires. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the How to Play podcast. This podcast is about learning and teaching games. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from Buffalo, New York. This episode was recorded on January 16th, 2010. Now today I'm going to teach you to play Age of Empires 3, The Age of Discovery. Now this is an amazing game. It's one of my favorites of all time. Unfortunately, it just has this bad licensing tie-in. No, you don't have to have played previous Age of Empires games. There's no Age of Empires 1 or Age of Empires 2 board game. This game was created with a marketing tie-in to the popular video game series, Age of Empires. And at the time it was produced, uh, the current game in the series was Age of Empires 3, and so therefore we're stuck with this horrible game title. Uh, you know, I've never played this game, but to the best of my knowledge, from what I've been told secondhand, this game has very little to do with the computer game except for the time period of the Discovery Age. If you're a fan of the computer series, that's great, then you'll probably love this game even more. Myself, when I first heard this game title, you know, I just thought it was another silly computer game turned into a bad board game. Don't let the name scare you. This is a fantastic game which can be easily testified by its board game rank. It's currently ranked 31st on all of the board games, which is a pretty high ranking. Then you can do what I do and just call it Age of Empires, which is a halfway decent game name, and don't worry about the computer games, and just enjoy and appreciate this very well-designed worker placement game by Glenn Drover. The game plays in two to three hours, and it plays technically, it says on the box, from three to five, but I'll tell you, it's not really quite that fun with three players, and you can add a sixth player if you get an expansion set of pieces. And the, the game plays pretty well with six, and I'd really recommend you pick up that expansion. So we will do our complexity rating, then our hook, meat, hamster, and footnotes. As always, in the hook and meat, you're going to get a full game explanation. I believe we're the only board game podcast out there that goes over each and every nitty-gritty little rule. In listening to this, you'll be able to fully understand the game. So you can use this to learn the game yourself, or you could put it on in lieu of explaining a game so that the whole group could learn how to play a game together. In the hamster section, which is the strategy section, I have a very special guest today. I've managed to bring in the world champion of Age of Empires. No joke. He's going to be here on the show to give you some strategy tips. And then later on, in the footnotes and musings, this would be a good section. If you're already familiar with the game, you might want to skip ahead here. I hit the finer points of the game's commonly missed rules. And I'm going to talk about thematic integration and a discussion on competition in board games. As always, this will be much easier to follow if you have that game out right in front of you with all the components. Or you could use the rule book. The rule book has a picture of the that beautiful game board on the back page which you could use. Or at least a picture of the game board will help you as I go over the rules for this game. I also heartily recommend the set of player aids available at BoardGameGeek created by Jack Urban. These aids will greatly improve your play experience. They have a lot of easily referenceable information, and it has actually a functional play area which will really improve your game experience, as well as just being very attractive to look at. So if you own this game, go to the file section at BoardGameGeek under Age of Empires and find this player aid. You'll just love them. All right, so let's get to the show, starting with our complexity rating. 
Complexity rating. Age of Empires 3 is a black diamond game. It's a game for gamers. There are a few too many rules to use with people less familiar with games, but I find the game to be very intuitive, and the rules, though there are quite a few, they're all pretty easy to grasp. Beginning strategies are somewhat obvious, and it is a game that you can really just dig into the first time you play the game. So let's get to the hook. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Age of Empires. You are one of the European powers just after news reaches of the New World. Which country will capitalize on the new opportunities of this new world and become the mightiest empire of the age? So you want to become the most powerful country in the game. Power in this game is represented by victory points. There are four major ways to get these points and they are by controlling colonies with having the most people in a colony which you sent over on this colony ship by discovering new regions using this discovery box represented by flipping tiles by building these building tiles and by collecting sets of trade goods to increase your income you'll accomplish these things through the major mechanic of worker placement that means you're going to have at least five pieces or colonists each turn to play on the different sections of the board the players will take turns each placing one of their figures on the board. On the right side of the board, there's all these different boxes where you can play your figures, and each of the boxes do different things, such as go to the new world, buy a building, get one of the trade goods, and so on. Now, by playing a worker, players sometimes block other players from being able to do that same thing, or by going to a section first, a lot of times you'll get to take that action first or choose first if there are several of the items to choose from. We will all take turns around the table playing our pieces one person at a time until everyone has played all of their pieces. And then we will resolve all of the action boxes from the top all the way down to the bottom and then remove the pieces as we resolve the actions. Then we'll load up with at least five more guys, get paid some money, and do it all over again. We do this over eight turns and whoever has the most points at the end of the eight turns is the winner. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So the heart of this game, like all the other worker placement games, is prioritizing. Which of those boxes do you need to go to first? Which of those boxes do I want to go first at? Or which one of those do I have to go to now because it won't be available later on in the turn? So in order to make those decisions, you need to have a solid knowledge of what all those different boxes do. There are eight different major areas in which you can place your guys. We're going to go over each one of those in detail from top to bottom. Now at the very top there's a turn order box. Now you can't actually play guys there. All that does is mark the order of the turn. For the first turn this is random but it will change during the game and how it can change is by playing pieces in the next area down. The next area down is called initiative and if you want a better place in the following turn you're going to want to put your piece in the first spot there. So if you place your piece on the 1, that guarantees that next turn you're going to go first in the turn order. Also, this is a way to make a little bit of money. For going in this spot, you get the amount of money on the number you win on. So if you go on the number 4, you're going to go fourth, but you also get $4 from the bank. Now if you don't go in the initiative track, you'll just stay in whatever position you are and slide to the back behind all the people who jumped up in front of you. The next area is the colonist dock. This lets you take your pieces and move them to the new world, which you want to do because you get points for having the most people in the region. So look at the Caribbean there. Whoever has the most 
people there at the end of turn three will get a good chunk of victory points. Now you note that the boat has a capacity, and when it's full, it's full. You're out of luck. When we resolve the boat, the players will decide in order which region to put their piece in. And this can be important because the first person to get three people into a region gets that bonus trade good that's sitting there. As you can see in the Caribbean, the bonus trade good is sugar. But sometimes it's nice to be towards the end of the boat because then you get to see where all the other people go before you place your piece. Now on the very first turn of the game, the people will only be going to the Caribbean region. And I'll explain why later in the explanation. Alright, the next box down is trade goods. To set up, we put four random trade goods and set it next to these box. Every turn, there will be four available. And what you're going to try to do is collect sets of them, meaning you want three or four of a kind of the same good. There are two reasons you want to do that. Because it earns you money every turn for having sets, and because at the end of the game, you'll get victory points based on those sets. There's a number on that tile. The number on each tile is how many of those pieces there are in the game. So cows has a number three on it because there's three tiles. Now be aware that a lot of the tiles have one of those tiles already on the board that you get as a bonus for being the first person to get three in the section. Some of the tiles, like cows, don't have a piece on the board there. They're all in the bag. Now there's four boxes in the trade goods section. The first person to play there will place their piece in the first box on the far left. That's a good spot to be, because whoever's there first gets to pick their trade good first, and people will pick which trade good they get in order. So if you take that last box, you're simply claiming whatever is left to you. Now at the end of each turn, you'll get paid for your trade goods, depending on the sets that you have. If you have a random group of three, then you'll just simply get a buck for it. If you have less than three, you're not going to get anything. If you have three of the same kind, you're going to get $3 at the end of the turn. If you have four of the same kind, you're going to get $6 at the end of the turn. And you might have, for example, a four of a kind and a three of a kind and a random group of three. In that case, you would get six plus three plus one or $10. Now the next box down is called Merchant Shipping. And it has this cool big plastic brown boat on it. And that boat is there to help you make those three of a kinds or four of a kinds. Because if you win this boat, you can use it as a wild trade good when you figure out your income. It can be any good you want. And you can change what you want to call that good each turn. But you only get to use one boat per set. So say I have two sugar tiles and two boats. I can't call that four sugar. I can only use one boat in a set. I'd have to use that other boat uh, in another set somewhere else. How do you win this boat? Simple. Whichever player puts the most people in this area wins the boat at the end of the turn. If there is a tie, whoever is closest to first place on the turn order, the current turn order, will win the tie. That means if you are going first in a particular round, you will always win ties. The next section is the building section. You go here when you want to buy one of these building tiles. There will be five buildings available per turn. Now, why do you want buildings? Well, early you'll want to buy them because usually they'll give you a special ability such as get an extra colonist, for example. You start with five, and if you have one of those buildings the next turn and for the entire rest of the game, you'll have six guys for every turn, which is a nice advantage. Later in the game, as we get deeper into the stacks, there are some really good buildings there for getting victory points. Now again, like the trade goods section, the first person who is there will get first choice of the buildings. So you're going to want to be aware of that. If it gets down to the fourth or fifth box, you may want to wait and see what will come up next turn and not buy a building this turn. 
To start the game, the buildings cost $10, which is at least how much money you get to start the game. So you'll be able to buy a building on that first turn if you'd like. The next box is the Discovery Box. This is where you're going to store up people to go on a Discovery Expedition. Now why do you want to do this? Because you're going to earn points and you're going to open up more areas to colonize. Now when we start this game, the only region everyone knows about is the Caribbean. Because imagine that we're starting the game right after Columbus returns and we know the Caribbean is there but we don't know where any of these other spots are. So that's why the rule is on the very first turn you can only send colonists to the Caribbean. To be able to send people to a different region, someone will have to discover it. How do you discover it? Well, you're going to gather a contingent of guys here. Usually you'll want at least three guys. You can send as few as one if you want. So we'll have a big cluster of guys in here, and in turn order, players will decide if they want to go on an expedition. And how you do that is you say how many people you want to send and where you want to send them. Now the risk is, is that there is a random number of native people in each of these sections. You don't know how strong the native force is there. It will be between one and five natives. And you kind of have to decide how lucky you feel. Now let me give you an example. Let's say my good buddy Brett Favre is playing this game Age of Empires. And he has to decide whether he wants to go on a discovery mission or whether he wants to stay home. Well, he waffles back and forth for a long time about this, and the players get really tired of it, and they start throwing stuff at him. But eventually he decides he wants to go. So he says, all right, I'm going to try to discover Canada with three of my guys. So there's a discovery tile in Canada, and we flip it over and see what happens. Now there's only two natives there, and Brett succeeds because he had more than, or at least equal to, the number of natives. So Brett gets that discovery tile, and he puts it in front of him. He immediately takes the bonus money in the yellow section of the tile. Now there's a reddish-orange section with a helmet. Ignore that for now. At the end of the game, you'll get victory points on that tile. Remove all the people who went on the discovery. So he went with three guys. Those three guys just go back to his stock. And then he takes one of his normal colonist pieces and he places it in Canada. Now there's a trade tile in Canada, but he doesn't get that yet. Because remember, the first person to get three people in the area gets that trade good, which may not necessarily be Brett Favre. Now be aware that no one can put more guys in there until the next turn, because the boat empties out before we do discoveries. But on turn two there, Canada will have been discovered, and now people, when they go to the colonist dock, they don't have to say where they're going. When we resolve, then they'll decide, do they want to go to the Caribbean, or do they want to go to Canada? Now let's say Tony Romo is going to discover. Let's say he also goes with three guys. He goes to Brazil. He flips the tile there in Brazil, and there are four natives there. Failure. Kind of like when he flubbed the hold of that kick in the playoff game. He loses three guys. They go back to his stock, wasted. And the tile stays in the region, and that remains undiscovered. Now the nice thing about the discovery box is it's the only area of the board where pieces can stay there from turn to turn. Everything else in the game will clear. So if you have just one or two guys left and you don't know what to do with them, you can put them in that box and even though you're not going to go on discovery with one or two guys, you could save them and use them for next turn. Now eventually all the regions on the board will be discovered. So at that point, you're not going to use the extra tiles. You're going to go to the cards, and the cards get a little bit harder. The natives range from three all the way up to six on a few of the cards. Also know that you always have the choice of how many guys to send. If you have five or even seven, you can still choose to just send three. 
but know that you can only make one discovery per player per turn. So you can't save those other guys and go that turn. You'd have to wait and go on the following turn. So that's discovery. So let's move on to specialists. I love this part. Now we get to talk about all those cool different shaped pieces that you have in front of you. Now for most of the game, you'll be using the colonist pieces. These are the standard pieces. These are the dudes with the axe and they've got like a bunch of logs on their shoulder. But there are four other special pieces that you can acquire for use during the game. There are two major ways to get them either through by building buildings that will give you one of them per turn. For example, there is, a, there is a monastery which is going to give you a free missionary every turn. Or you can get one for one time by going to the specialist area. So for example, I put my piece in the missionary box. Then when we resolve that section, I'm going to get an extra missionary. So next turn, for one turn only, I will have five colonists plus the one bonus missionary that I just got. So there's four different guys, missionary, merchant, soldier, captain, and they all look really cool. But what do they do? Well, first of all, these pieces can be used just as regular pieces. You can use them just like you would a normal columnist piece and put them in any section of the board. But a lot of times that would be wasting it because they get a bonus function in specific areas of the board. They, they want to go to special areas. Let's start with that missionary. The missionary, of course, wants to get on that colonist boat so he can go over and convert the natives. So when we unload pieces off the boat and put them in the new world, and the missionary goes to a region, let's say a missionary goes into Brazil, and he immediately converts some of the Brazilian natives to Christianity. And to represent that, you take one of your colonist pieces, and you kind of have to imagine that he's a native, and then put him in that region. So basically, he's a two-for-one when you're colonizing, which is very valuable because there's limited space on that colonist boat. And these missionaries are going to give you a jump on colonizing the different regions. Now, all the other three pieces, the merchant, the soldier, the captain, they have two different functions, which is kind of nice because you can decide and be flexible about which one you want to do. Let's start with the merchant. Now, the merchant wants to go to the New World, or he wants to try to get that boat. Going to the New World, he earns you money. So he works just like a regular colonist. You put him on the colonist boat. But when he goes, you get $5 immediately then from the bank. Or he can help you win that merchant shipping boat. You know, the, the wild trade good, the big brown plastic boat, that box there. You know how you have to have the most guys there to win it? Well, the merchant counts as two people. For example, let's say Brett Favre had a merchant and a colonist, and Tony Romo had two regular colonists. The score would be 3-2, to two, since the merchant counts as two, and Brett Favre would win the boat. Now let's look at the soldier. The soldier wants to either go to the New World so he can shoot people, or he wants to pillage the natives, and he does that by going to the Discovery Box. Now if he goes to the New World, he can shoot people and he'll shoot little pieces of other players' colors, which is a lot of fun, and I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Or you can include him in an expedition in the Discovery Box, and he'll count just as a normal guy, but if you're successful, he's going to earn you extra money as the soldier pillages the new land. That's that orangish red section of the tile that has a helmet on it. For each soldier, you earn that much money. All right, now the captain. He's got that telescope. The captain, of course, he wants to discover new lands. He wants to go to the discovery box, or he wants to do some merchant shipping. So he wants to win that brown boat too, and he functions exactly the same as the merchant there. He counts as two people. So he, he has a value of two. So if you had a merchant and a captain in that box, you'd have a value of four. It would take another person of four regular colonists in order to match you. 
but he also counts as two people when he goes on a discovery. So you know how you count people to defeat the natives? The captain counts as a value of two. So when you discover, captain counts as two, soldiers count as one but give you extra money. So let me test you. If Adrian Peterson goes on discovery with one captain, two soldiers, and one colonist on his expedition, what is the value of his expedition? Meaning, how many natives can he defeat? Did you say five? Well, you were right. But did you also say that he fumbled the football? All right, that's not related. So we flip the tile, and if it has five natives on it, he's successful. Let's say it has uh, the four yellow bonus money, and it says helmet slash five. That means five money per soldier. So he gets four plus five plus five. He's going to get 14 money for making that discovery. Well done, Adrian. So let's look back at those four guys quickly. The missionary wants to go on the colonist boat. He gives you an extra guy when you go over. The merchant either is going to give you five bucks for colonizing, moving over the new world, or he's worth two in the fight for the brown boat. The soldier goes over to the new world so he can shoot other pieces, or he goes in the discovery box to earn you extra money. And the captain is worth two, either in the fight for the brown boat or in discovering new regions. And lastly, there's a training box there in the specialist area. Now, if you want one of those guys and the box has already been taken, you could go in that training area, but the penalty is you do have to pay $5. The upside is you get to choose whichever of those four guys you want. Now, last box, warfare. Oh, yes, bloodshed. So this spot lets you shoot with the soldiers you already have in the new world. Now, you're not going to have any soldiers over there on the first turn, so you're not going to be able to use this on the first turn, but later on, you'll have soldiers over there, or you'll have soldiers in the boat ready to go over there. And claiming this spot says that you want to start a war uh, with, with one of the other countries in one of the regions. Now, war is very simple in this game. There's no dice rolling or anything. Each soldier simply kills somebody. A soldier wants to kill a soldier first. The type of piece after soldiers does not matter at all. So here's an example. Brett Favre has two colonists and one soldier in Brazil. Tony has three colonists. Brett has one of those pieces in warfare, and when we get to resolve it, Brett says, I'm going to have a war with Tony Romo in Brazil. So in that region, all the soldiers will fire at each other. Brett only has the one soldier. It kills one of Tony's pieces. War is over. Now let's say uh, Brett had two colonists and one soldier. Tony had two colonists and one soldier. Brett declares that war. Both soldiers fire. Even though Brett declared the war, both soldiers get to fire, and those soldiers will just kill each other. Now if Brett had two soldiers, and Tony had one soldier and a colonist, Brett takes warfare again. Brett's two soldiers will fire, killing both of Tony's pieces. Tony only has one piece that will fire, killing one of the soldiers. So all that will be left there in Brazil would be one of Brett's soldiers. Now keep in mind, you only get to start a war against one player in one region. Now if you go twice in the warfare box on a turn, you could then fire against a player in two different regions. Or you could fire against two different players in the same region. Or you could even fire against the same player twice in one region. But remember, if the player you declare war against has soldiers, they're going to fire back at the same time, and, and you can't stop that. But if they don't have any soldiers in there, let's say you have one soldier and they just have five civilians, you can just take four warfares and pow, 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 get rid of four of his guys. And since he doesn't have any soldiers, there's nothing he can do about it. Finally, if you have the money 
and you have a large vendetta against one player and you're both in a lot of the same regions, you can declare what's called a total war. A total war costs $10. And what this does is say Brett declares total war against Tony. Then all of Brett's and Tony's soldiers are going to fire at each other in each region on the whole board. Keep in mind that none of the other players' pieces would be involved. What the $10 does is lets you fire at every region across the board. And again, if you had the money, you could do that multiple times if you really wanted to pick off a lot of pieces. So those are the eight places that you can play guys. Here they are again quickly for review from top to bottom. The initiative is going to give you a better spot in the turn order. The colonist dock is where you send your guys from the right side of the board over to the different regions in the board to score points. The trade goods sections you go to try to get those trade goods to collect sets to increase your income and get victory points at the end of the game. The merchant shipping section is the big plastic brown boat and that counts as a wild trade good to help you make your sets. The buildings, you go there to buy the different buildings which is going to give you special abilities, extra guys and victory points and so on. The discovery box, you're going to store up people to try to flip tiles in the new region and eventually flip cards. And the specialist is going to give you a special guy for the next turn. And then the warfare is where you go if you want to shoot people in the new world. So now you know where to place guys. That's pretty much the main thing that you need to know. You're going to be placing your five guys there, deciding where the most important place for you to go. But after that's all done, uh, there's some resolution that needs to take place. So let's look at the basic turn structure. The first phase is what we just explained. You have your five guys, you're going to be putting them in different sections one at a time until everyone has played all their guys. Next comes resolution. We go from the top to the bottom. So the top is initiative. You're going to collect your money. Now don't change the turn order yet. Usually you take the guys off, you don't do it for this first top box. Then we go to the next one which is the calmest boat. And One at a time players will decide where they want to go. Remember, of course, the first turn there's no choice, so you just grab them and put them in there. Players will decide in order from left to right which trade good they want. Then we'll give out the boat to the person with the most. Then we'll go down to discovery and players will decide one at a time if they want to try to discover a region and how many people they're going to try to send. Then you're going to get your extra guys from the specialist box and then you're going to be able to shoot people if you put people in warfare. After you resolve all of those, everything will be removed except for, like I said, the top and any discovery guys who did not go on a discovery. And then at end, the end of the turn you have all these cleanup end steps which is basically resetting the turn and getting things ready for the next turn. So here are all these cleanup steps. The first thing is to get paid. You get paid based on the sets of trade goods that you have and you might have a building that gives you extra money. And you also get any other extra things you get from your buildings. Most of these will be extra guys, but there may be some extra benefits you get during this phase. Then you got to completely refresh the board. The trade goods, if there's any still there, those go away and you repick four more to put up. The buildings, any that are still there, stay and you refill up to five. Each player is going to get their five normal guys and then remember they'll probably have a few extra from either going in the specialist box or from the buildings that they've bought. So some people will have six or seven and some might have more later in the game even eight or nine. And players will have different numbers when you get to the next turn. You just follow the turn order and once a player is out just skip them and keep going until everyone has played all their guys. 
Now, finally, right before the end end of the turn, you take that initiative and change the turn order based on that initiative. The easiest way to do that is if everybody went on that initiative track, just slide the initiative track up to the turn order box and take all the pieces that were in the turn order box and give them back to the players. If everyone didn't, then just put the ones there that did and slide everyone else back. So then at the very bottom is the turn marker. You're just going to move that and you're going to do it all over again. You'll do this eight times. Now if you look at that turn order box, it's divided into three sections. The end of each age is after the third turn, the sixth turn, and the eighth turn. At the end of each age, we're going to score the colonies and get the new buildings. Scoring the colonies means just looking over at that left side of the board, looking at each region, and whoever has the most pieces in a region is going to get six victory points. The person with the second most is going to get two victory points. Anyone else who has stuff there just gets nothing. And the scoring in this game really penalizes you for being tied. If there are two players and they're tied for first place, instead of someone getting six, they both only get two victory points. And if there were other players that had things in there, they would get nothing. Or again, if someone had the most and someone was tied for second, sorry, you're out of luck, you get nothing. In order for a region to score, it must have an established colony. In order to have an established colony, one player has to have three pieces there. So if there's three pieces of different colors, it's not going to score. If there's only one or two pieces there, it's not going to score. Be aware that in order for a region to score, one player must have at least three pieces there. Now, all of the guys in that new world at the end of the first age, they stay there. They don't go anywhere. Do not clear them off. In fact, usually when a piece goes to a region like the Caribbean, it's almost always going to sit there for the entire game. The only reason it's going to go away is if he gets shot or there's one little building that can move a few soldiers. But generally pieces, once they get to a spot, they're stuck there the whole game. The other major change when you get to the second age, which is the fourth turn, is the buildings. Any of the remaining age one buildings, those are the light brownish ones, are cleared. They're just removed out of the game. You get out your stack of age two buildings and you set out five there for the fourth turn. The price goes up as we go out throughout the game. The age two buildings cost $14, which is printed there on the board. And in the final age, which is once we get to the seventh turn, the buildings cost $20. And the functions of the buildings change as you go throughout the game. Because at the beginning of the game, they mostly give you extra guys, which is very valuable. At the end of the game, the buildings are mostly focused on finding ways to give you victory points. You'll note that the third age is only two turns long. After the eighth turn, the game is over. And it's good to know at the end of the game, after you resolve all the actions, you're still going to get paid, and you're going to get the benefits from your building. The reason you're still going to get paid, though it seems useless, is there's a few buildings that rely on how much money people have, and it can be a factor for scoring at the end of the game. So at the end of that eighth turn, you will score the colonies a final third time. After you score the colonies, the only thing that you're marking on that scoring track so far has been the colony scoring. Any scoring from discoveries or tiles, you simply left and kept uh, right in front of you until the very end of the game. So now, after the colonies have been scored three times, each player is going to score for their income. You're going to see how much they would earn from their income from the sets of trade goods and their ships 
Don't count income from any building tiles that give you money. Just trade goods and chips. So let's say I had a four of a kind, a three of a kind, and two other random tiles. So that would have been $6, $3, two random tiles give me nothing. So my income would have been nine, so that's worth nine victory points at the end of the game. Then each player is going to add up all the VPs marked in red. They'll have some from their discovery tiles, from their discovery cards, and from their capital buildings. And those are added to the score track. And finally, some of the capital buildings have bonuses, like you get one point for each of these things, and you'll add those in. So once you have all of those things, you've gotten points three times from having people in the colonies, you've gotten points for your income, you've gotten points from your discovery tiles and cards, and you've gotten points from your capital buildings. You add all of that stuff up together, and whoever has the most points wins the game. Part 3, the hamster. How to win the game. So as you just heard, there's a lot going on in this game. There's a lot of ways to score victory points. A lot of different mechanics are happening all at once. So to help you make sense of all this and pull this all together, I've managed to get in contact with the current reigning world champion of Age of Empires. And thankfully he agreed to travel all the way here to the How to Play Studios here in Western New York. Thank you very much, sir, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and visit us here on the show. I know, you know, being a world board gaming champion, I'm sure you have a lot of media appearances to do, you know, television interviews and magazine photo shoots. I'm sure there are a lot of other podcasts that were clamoring for your wisdom. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down here with me today. You're very welcome, Ryan. I wouldn't miss it. First of all, let me just say what a handsome man you are. You are even better looking than you are on your world board gaming championship profile shot. Well, thank you, sir. You are not so bad yourself. So how difficult was it to work through the the field and claim that world championship? Well, uh, there was almost two dozen hopefuls, but there could only be one world champion. Wow, 200 people. Two, two dozen people. Oh, oh, I see. But the preparation involved to prepare for such a contest must have been taxing. Oh yeah, I probably played the game uh, four or five times. And I painted my minis for the game. There's like 300 of them. And my fingers sometimes would cramp up a lot. And sometimes my back would get a little sore. Yes, yes, uh, back aches. That, that can be quite a problem. Uh, but the competition, it, it must have been fierce. Yes, the two full games required for me to claim the title of world champion, I really had to bring my all. Excellent, sir. Well, thank you so much for joining us. What advice would you give to young children who aspire to be world champions such as yourself? Well, if you're looking for direction and getting started in this game, you should look no farther than the pieces staring you in the face. Each piece represents one of the major strategies in the game. You could go for a merchant strategy in which you're trying to get as much money as you can by acquiring a lot of goods, uh, trying to get merchants, trying to get buildings that give you merchants, trying to get some of the boats, and then since you're gaining a lot of money, you're going to buy a lot of buildings. You go with more of a captain strategy in which you try to do as many discoveries as possible by focusing on getting captains and getting buildings that help you do more discovering. 
Or you could probably do a soldier strategy uh, in which you really assert your dominance in the new world with a lot of guns, which typically won't score you a ton of points, but let me say it is a whole lot of fun. Pow, pow, pow! Or lastly, you could take what I like to call the missionary position, in which you try to get a lot of missionary buildings, and in this strategy, you're trying to get as many people in the new world and get as many regions as you can to score a lot of points. Uh, so, sir, you would recommend just uh, following one of those paths and maybe focus on it the whole game? Well, yes and no. You do want to have a focus on one or two of those things that you're really trying to do, but you can't ignore certain parts of the game. You have to be able to buy buildings, so you need to have some way to get money, especially at the end of the game. You must have 20 bucks to buy one of at least one of those big point-scoring buildings. It's also pretty wise to defend your holdings in the New World with a soldier or two. Now, if you never send a soldier over to the New World, the other players will have a blast blowing up your pieces. Ah, a blast. Very good, sir. Do you have any other advice? Don't get too wrapped up just in the winning regions of the world. Sometimes people think this is the whole game, but remember that that's probably only going to be a quarter or a third of your final score. Concentrate on making sure that you win at least one or two regions, as domination is rewarded over just spreading your guys all over the place. Be careful not to get in a boat fight. You know, getting those boats is good, but sometimes you can get in a war of attrition where you dump three guys into that box and you still don't even get the boat. If you're going to go for that, make sure that you can win. Don't underestimate initiative. Especially in the scoring turn, such as three or the final turn, going first can be a huge advantage, and going last can just crush you. Two major areas are because the colonist boat is going to fill up, and having first choice of the buildings, especially near the end of the game with those big scoring buildings, is essential. And look ahead at those buildings. Know what's coming up. I'm not going to give away what I think are the best buildings, as I think discovering that and some of the combinations is part of the fun of the game. But do be aware of what's coming up. Well, good luck, everyone. Have fun playing this great game. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a cheesy dust-free Cheetos TV commercial to film. Of course, sir. Thank you for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Four, footnotes and musings. Okay, time for the footnotes and musings. First, let's get to the vegetables. There's a lot of little vegetables that I skipped. There's a few um, nitpicky rules and just some hints on making sure that your Age of Empires experience is a good one. After which, I have some short discussions on thematic integration and competition in board games. So stay tuned for that. So the vegetables. Um, one thing you need to get used to in this game, if you've never played games like this before, is that play is probably not going to be clockwise. You have to carefully follow this order, and that can get a bit confusing. The reason for this is because acquiring a better turn order position is a strategic part of the game, and it's a really fun part of the game, how that shakes up every turn. But the annoying part is that you can get confused by this, and it can really slow the game down because people don't know when their turn is, or they get confused and play in the wrong order. And I find it actually really helps, even though it seems kind of dumb, to have someone be in charge of keeping the game moving by just following that turn order track and calling out the color after each play. Blue, your turn. Red, your turn. Green, orange, etc. Because that way people won't get confused. 
and if they're zoning out, it will just keep the game moving. Some setup notes. Uh, make sure that you give the players extra money based on the turn order. It's one of the rules in the game you don't want to miss. The person who goes first gets 10. The person who goes second gets 11, 12, 13, so on. So this helps adjust for the disadvantage of going last. Also be aware of the colonist boat capacity. You're not going to use the whole thing unless you're playing with six, which you won't do unless you have the extra pieces. The formula is 2x minus 1, where x is the number of players. So, so if you have four players, that would be seven, or seven spots, nine for five, and so on. All right, so a few tips on some of the extra materials you might want to use. I like to use get cubes, wooden cubes, in the colors of the different player colors because they tell you to use one of the columnists for the scoring track. There are several editions of the game. The first printing of the game has this itty-bitty scoring track, and it's this great board with the worst scoring track you'll ever see in your whole life because it's covered in spaces and it's super tiny. The second edition, I think, made it a little wider, but still the columnists are horrible as scoring markers because they fall over. If, if there's a tie, you can't really stack them. Just some simple, small cubes work really well for the scoring track. Another suggestion is the game tells you to use the silvers as $1 and the golds as $10. I usually find that's just too cumbersome, and I like to use the silvers as $1 and the golds is fives. Late in the game, people may have a ton of those fives, but it's not as annoying as having those nine singles. I'll tell you again, if you don't have those player aids, go get them. They are fantastic. You can get some of those uh, little portfolio plastic sheets to just slide those right in there to protect them. It has an active piece box in them, a colored box. You know, In the game, you'll have five active pieces, and you're going to put those in the box. A lot of times it can be confusing to see who has what piece. When you have this designated area to keep pieces, it really works well so you can just look over and see who has what and what pieces they have left. It also has statistics on how likely you are to succeed with certain numbers on your discoveries. Uh, it has reminders for, for what each piece does, end game scoring. One of the best player aids, hands down, I've ever seen. It's almost essential, so go print those out. All right, let's look at some of those little nitty-gritty rules. One thing I think I never stated is that you always must put your token in the farthest left box if possible when dealing with say the initiative track or the trade good box or the building box you're always going to put your piece in the furthest left now you almost always will want to do that the only case you might not want to is that initiative box say you really wanted four or five bucks you think you just stick it there go fifth and take five dollars you're not allowed to do that let's talk about discoveries um, one of the things about discoveries, if you fail a discovery tile, it tells you to put the tile back face down. Now, everybody knows how many natives are on there. And I'm not a big fan of like memory elements in games. I don't think a memory element should be included in this one. So personally, I prefer if someone fails it, just leave it face up so that people don't have to just keep reminding themselves that in their head. Later on in the game, you'll go to the cards. And when you fail discoveries on the cards, it works a little bit differently. If you fail a card, you put it in the deck and shuffle it up. So it's possible that that same card could come up again, but most likely it will be a different card. Often people get confused about soldiers. If you put soldiers in the discovery box, remember, all they're doing is going to earn you some money. They're not going to get to shoot anyone uh, on the board over on the left side. Because if you succeed in the discovery, you only get one normal colonist. 
If you want to shoot people, the soldier needs to go into the colonist dock. You should know that you're not really limited in any of the pieces. It's not too uncommon that you could run out of merchants because you sent all those merchants over. You are simply allowed to just swap those out, take a regular colonist, put it in where the merchant is, and take it off uh, from the new world there. Because once they're in the new world, the only pieces that matter are regular pieces and soldier pieces. Know that you are allowed to go to a place and not do it. For example, the building spot. You might go to that third building spot. People might buy the building you want, so you decide not to build a building. You could go there simply to block a place. One example is warfare. A lot of people have soldiers you don't. You want to fill up one of those squares so they all don't just shoot your guys. You should know that the buildings are limited for each age. Sometimes in rare cases, especially with the higher player, player numbers, you could just run out of uh, age one buildings for the third turn. There might only be three or four. And that's just the way it is. You're just going to have to deal with those buildings. The building tiles themselves are public knowledge of, of what they are, and most of them will come up. So I do encourage players to flip over those age two tiles and look at them before we shuffle them up and put some of them on the board so they're aware of what's possible for what's going to happen later on, Special, especially something like that rum distillery where you get a bonus for having sugar. That's something that's good for everybody to know that it's out there. Uh, things like the Things like the privateers, which let you rob from the players based on the number of boats you have. These things are good to know. So you won't know when things will come out, but you know what is going to come out probably at some point. Cash on hand at the end of the game, it's not worth points. It's only the second tiebreaker, actually. But you do have to pay out people, and you have to um, do the capital building benefits because one of the building tiles gives you points for how much money you have. So it might matter to one of the players. Also, there's one of them that gives you points for how many trade goods you have, and there's a building that lets you get another trade good every turn. So they are allowed to do that before we do the scoring. The actually first tiebreaker is if the score is tied at the very end of the game, is the person who scored the most points in the new world on the last turn. Now, if you get in the situation, you may have to go back, look at the board, look at the two players involved, blue and green, count up again how many points they got. Then you go to gold. This is the second tiebreaker, and the third tiebreaker, if you get that far, is number of trade goods. So that's it. That's all the nitty-gritty and what you need to know to play Age of Empires. It's time to muse. There's two musing topics for today. I want to talk about thematic integration, and I want to talk about competition in board games. Thematic integration. This game is in my top five games of all time. And the reason it is is because I love the theme of colonization and exploration and discovery, and I love how that theme is integrated in the game by the mechanics. Now the game itself, it doesn't really have any new major mechanics in the whole game. It doesn't have anything that's really a breakthrough in game design, except in the way that the way that the mechanics match that theme. Most of the mechanics from the game are borrowed from parts of other games. Most notably the use of the worker placement mechanic, which was kind of transformed from Kalis, which I already talked about quite a bit in the Stone Age episode. But I can tell you, I know that Glenn Drover did this design as a top-down game, meaning that he took the theme that he wanted to work with and decided, all right, how am I going to make mechanics that will fit this theme of discovery and exploration? This is opposed to the opposite approach, 
called bottom-up design where you would take a mechanic you have an idea for and then build the game up from there, build a theme around that, which you can usually tell is definitely more pasted on. Most Nitzia games have these bottom-up designs. He has a clever idea for an auction or for tile placement, and then he you know decides on a theme to, to call it. In this game and playing the game, you no doubt have a feel about discovery and exploration and the colonization. Some of the ways that he was successful in doing that is that I love the way that the different pieces work. I think the missionary, how that works, is so clever. The different choices that the soldier, the merchant, and the captain have, all doing the things that that person would want to do. The way that discovery works is so fun. It has that essence of discovering that you have to put what resources you want into it, live with the consequences. The way warfare works in the game, it's very simple, but it's a lot of fun. You can decide how much you want to invest in it, how much you need to just protect yourself. And the production certainly doesn't hurt matters of getting into the theme. The board is the most beautiful board of any game I own, except for that awful, awful score track. And those little figures, they're so stunning. Even the other little components, the art on the trade goods and, and chits and so on. It's just something to behold when it's set out in all its glory. It's a great game to look at, and it's just a ton of fun to play. So as I referenced, I did attend the WBC, which stands for the World Board Gaming Championship, this past summer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And for those of you who don't know about this, it's an annual event. It takes place in the beginning of August, and they have 100 or so board game tournaments. They have a sort of a committee, I guess, and they all vote on which games they're going to have tournaments for. And they, they use based on the attendance from the previous year. It was a pretty good experience. And I liked and enjoyed playing the games in a more competitive nature than maybe at your regular game night where, you know, maybe there's a new game every time or you don't have something where everybody knows the game and, and can play the game well. And so that kind of adds to the intensity of the experience, which some people don't like. And this got me thinking about, and it got me thinking about why people enjoy board games, the different reasons they enjoy them, one of them being competition and the appropriateness or inappropriateness of behavior based on the relative competitiveness of the game that you're playing. Now, I'm a competitive guy. I enjoy the competitive nature of board games, which is why I really prefer games that you can get better at and that you know people can outplay each other and outmaneuver each other based on clever moves and experience. But I'm brought back to a discussion I remember I had with one of my college buddies now, before I discovered Euro games, I was really into competitive magic, and I'd even, you know, play on the pro tour of Magic the Gathering. You know, this is, this is Magic the card game, not Magic pulling bunnies out of hats. And so I'd travel to these tournaments and, you know, corners of the, corners of the world to play competitive Magic the Gathering. So I remember sitting around the college dorm and trying to explain where I was going and what magic was and to a lot of a lot of my college friends and you know of course they were very mystified by all this and one of my college buddies he knew a little bit about magic and, and what he said to the rest of the guys what he said I'll never forget he says yeah magic is for people who are bad at sports 
which initially when I heard it, I mean, it, it was a little bit offensive to me. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not that bad at sports, but I'm not necessarily good at sports. You know, I, I played soccer all through high school, and I went to this huge high school, and they had a class of 600 people. And so, you know, I always wanted to be on that varsity team and play under the big lights, but frankly, I just I wasn't good enough. So, But I'm a very competitive guy, like I said, and, but, and I'm good at games, and I like games. So what did I do? I turned that competitiveness towards games. But now, you know, I may not be David Beckham, but... I have played on the Magic the Gathering Pro Tour, and I'm a world board gaming champion. What's David Beckham the world champion of? Nothing. Yeah, that's right, Beckham. Take that. All you have to comfort you is your millions of dollars, your worldwide fame, your very good-looking wife, and your millions of fans. But are you the world champion of anything? So, you know, my story has a, a really happy ending. You know, in high school, when I qualified for the Pro Tour, I mean, you can imagine the sort of uh, recognition that that achieved from my 17-year-old peers and sort of the general admiration from the student body. The girls. Oh, the girls. You know, what can I say? Competition has its rewards. So enough about the, the fame and glory of competitive game playing. Of course, you think about guys and their search for competition. It applies to a lot of other you know, strange hobbies by us men and in our habitual watching of sports and competing vicariously and thinking that if the Minnesota Vikings are to win this playoff game, somehow it makes me a better human being and it makes Minnesota the greatest state ever. Uh, to fantasy sports and trying to achieve domination through choosing players based on their statistics, to going out in the forest with a big gun or a crossbow and killing animals, to the acquisition of monstrous home theater setups to see who can have the largest widescreen television and the, the loudest stereo, to excessive drinking, you name it, guys like to be the best. But regardless, this nugget of wisdom, it was actually really helpful in me becoming more self-aware. Now, competition isn't the only reason that I play games. It's definitely a driving one. And you have to realize, as you teach games, that how different people approach the competitive nature of a game. You have to realize that some people do not play games for the competition. You know, they enjoy games for other reasons. Maybe they just like learning new games. Maybe they like the aesthetic quality of the games. Maybe they're playing it just because they know you like games. Maybe they're playing it just to goof around and have fun with a few of their friends. You also need to realize that in order to have a competitive game, you need some kind of a level playing field. Meaning if players have vastly different abilities, either through game experience or player capabilities, and whether you have a child there or just someone who's not familiar with games, or simply someone who's just not very smart, you can't have a competition if players aren't somewhat evenly matched in their ability to play the game. So what does this tell us? Well, we need to choose the right game, and we discussed that earlier on another episode, and that, that's very important based on what players are playing the game. Also, just overall game experience is a factor, or specific game experience. If you have a game that you've played 300 times online, don't bring it to your game night and expect to have a competitive game or feel all good about 
yourself because you just doubled the score of these poor people. I think some of the best game experiences come from people learning games together as a group. And that way, all the players are on equal footing as, as you discover the game. It's hard to have a competitive game the first time you play a game because a lot of time players will simply be learning the rules the first time. And either you might play a rule or two wrong, you, you teach it wrong, or maybe a few of the players will play half the game not knowing some of the rules or you know having really no comprehension of the basic game strategy. I've heard of some game groups that do a game of the month and I really like this idea is, is you're really able to dig into a game and discover the game and have some, some real, actual, competitive games. You know, I'm not a part of this cult of the new, these people who buy 10 games a week and want to play a new game every week. That's it, not really my thing. I like playing new games, but generally I'd rather work on getting better at games and having a good competitive game. I'm going to start a new cult, if you want to use that word. I, I would prefer not to. I don't, I don't want to be a leader of a cult. That seems, seems a bad thing to be. Let's call it uh, an ideology. And my ideology is that we should play great games more often. Now, this time of year, there's a lot of the podcasts that are talking about overviews of the games of 2009. And I really looked it over and, and reflected on the games of 2009. And I didn't play some of the big ones, but I hit some of the, some of the top ones that people are talking about. And there are none of them that really grabbed me and said, this is going to be a great game that people are going to be playing for years and years and years. You know, some people might make cases for Small World or Endeavor, but personally, I, I didn't really care for either of those games or found them to be fantastic games. Um, but in thinking about that, my point is don't get caught up in all this hype for the newest games. You know, I, I like to just wait a year and if people are still talking about them, then, then you can look into them. I mean, there's really no rush. If you look at the top 250 games of Board Game Geek right now, it probably has all of the good gaming that you could ever possibly need in your lifetime. A lot of these games in the top 250, you could probably play a hundred times and still be having fun. By playing great games more often, I think will lead to your game group to some of the best game experience you have ever had. The most fun I had this year playing games was in our Age of Steam League because we all knew the game, we didn't have to spend time learning the game, and we all knew various strategies to employ, and we kept developing more strategies every time that we would play. And it also developed sort of this, this metagame feel from game to game. But of course this gets back to my personal gaming bias, which is that I like to play games for the competition, which though it is a reason to play games, for a lot of people it's not always the, the reason to play games. Uh, and, and it brings me back to an important point, that gaming is not always about competition. And you need to be aware of when it's not about competition and behave accordingly. You know, depending on the situation, who's playing the game, um, what game it is, it may not be a competitive situation, and I'll change the tone of the game. But regardless whether the game is competitive game or not, it sometimes... I wish gamers as a whole were a more civil group of individuals. You know, I don't really like the phrase, it's just a game, as I think that this phrase too often can be used to excuse poor gamesmanship, and it, it denigrates the value of one of my favorite things in the whole world, games. So just a game, I mean, that, that kind of hurts me inside because I love games so much. 
But rather, I, I think to when I do my board game club with kids and I talk to them about how I expect them to play games. And the number one rule I came up with to try to teach kids to play games, sometimes I feel like I need to have a discussion with this with some of the adults uh, as well when I play games. And that is play the game in a way so that the game is fun for everyone. Think about what that includes. What, what kind of game behavior that includes. I know I myself have been guilty of violating that rule. Play the game in a way so that the game is fun for everyone. This includes you need to play to win the game. You need to play with a good attitude. Don't use your emotions or whining or yelling to influence other players' actions. You know, some diplomacy is, of course, allowed and makes the game more fun, but there definitely is a line to cross. Taking in stride when bad things happen to you or, or bad luck happens to you. Don't kingmake at the end of the game. Use other players' first names. Make eye contact with the other players. When the game is over, if you win, be humble. Try to say very little other than good game, guys. You know, that was fun. And when you lose, don't explain to us the reason why you didn't win the game. Just take a deep breath, complimenting the victor and congratulating them. You get the idea. I hope I don't have to explain these things to you. But you know, you probably know as well as I do, how much some of these things are missing sometimes when, when you play a game with adults, which, which can be quite shocking. But I think the, the idea is a valid one, that players, need to, that players need to behave in a civil way, and games can be both competitive and enjoyable, so we all have a good time. So I hope you got something out of that discussion of competition in board games. Which brings me to the groveling phase of the podcast. I'll keep it real short because I want to say there's been really a lot of support recently. I've had a lot more new guild members. If you haven't yet joined the guild, join up. Uh, join the discussion. We've had some new discussions there. You can always donate to the podcast at howtoplaypodcast.com. And I'll just say that it's because of you that we have made it to 10 episodes. I'd love to get to 20. And just for fun, to get something going on the guild there, I'm going to do a 10-show poll of what you think of the podcast so far. I'm going to put a variety of poll questions up there, and I think it's time for a new survey of what game you want to see. I know El Grande's on the docket. I'll probably, I will do that at some point. But just for fun, we will do a, a poll specifically for episode number 12. I'll list a number of choices there. We'll have some votes. I'll have a deadline. And at that deadline, whoever has the most votes, I will do an episode on that game. So that's a little bit of encouragement to go to that guild, join up if you haven't, and vote to see what you want for episode 12. I don't know what I'm going to do for episode number 11. I'm thinking about something a little shorter. Uh, you'll just have to wait and see. But please go and participate in that poll. Trying to get to that 100 guild members if we can. That really wraps things up for Age of Empires. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast. Vikings! With any luck, by the time you listen to this, the Vikings are Super Bowl champions. With no luck, they've already been eliminated. Please, put your helmeted horns on for the sake of your favorite podcaster. We can see a Vikings Super Bowl win.